first rule in grip sport is you tell everyone about grip sport. You're crushing conscript thick bar wrists. If the best guy in the world can't lift 100 pounds on it, I, I don't give a shit about it. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Grip Show. All right, with me today, I have uh, probably one of the biggest names in grip sport right now. And with some of the things he's been knocking off on uh, for uh, different certifications and feet lists, um, probably one of the biggest uh, biggest names in general, whether it be competition or whether it be feats. Um, he doesn't really need an introduction, but for the sake of any new listeners, we'll give one, you know, uh, Carl Myersko. So welcome to the show, Carl. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me, Zach. Man, uh, you've been highly requested as as usual. I mean, I know you, you make your rounds, you do interviews with you know all kinds of different grip shows and stuff like that. Um, so you, you're just a highly requested guest, and it's good that you're taking the time to actually sit down. And I'm, I'm thankful that you're taking the time to you know basically give us the interview and give us this information. So, um. You, you were born in Blackpool, England, right? Correct. Yes. That's that, that's like hometown. All right. Now, how long were you in England before making it to the States? Um, All my childhood until I, I came to, I got recruited to go to college in Nebraska for track and field. Mm-hmm. Um, so in uh, January of 2000, I, I came to the U.S., I was born in 1979, so the first 20 years of my life I was in England, basically, and then, um, you know, I went to went to college in Nebraska, and I've been in America ever since. When okay. I was comp- when I was competing in track, I'd be in Europe and at home in England for two or three months every summer. But yeah, I've been in the U.S. for 23 years. Okay, so about half and half. Yeah, yeah, pretty pretty much. Okay. Um, so now just, just to kind of start off kind of, I guess, towards the beginning, um, you being a strength athlete and having a, a a very diverse background, which we're going to get into a little bit more in a minute, but growing up as a kid, kind of in your younger years, what was the weightlifting culture like, or the training culture like in general, where you were at? I mean, everybody kind of has that first like introduction to weights or, you know, uh, first time in a weight room playing a sport or, you know, you I don't know, in America, a lot of times, I guess, a lot of people, you know, during that 80s time frame or something, you know, bodybuilding was really big. And then powerlifting maybe gets big a little bit later on or something, you know, so there's different people in different eras and different ways that kind of come through. When you were younger and first kind of getting into training and anything or lifting weights, what was that What was that scene like over there for you? Um, where I grew up, I was born in Blackpool, but I actually lived more in the countryside in a small village um, mm-hmm. called Hambleton, about eight miles away from Blackpool, mostly surrounded by farms and agriculture. I think our village had population was about 3,000, mm-hmm. so small place. Um, I did a lot of... Uh, regular sports as a kid i mean in england football or soccer as we know it is the dominant is the main sport which i perhaps wasn't so physically suited to so uh but i you know i did soccer i did swimming i did tennis i did taekwondo um 
and then my dad used to do track and field and shot put. And so he's the one that kind of introduced me to that. And then I started doing that when I was 13. And then I did that for 23 years, you know, and then I transitioned to grip. But my dad also had an interest in grip. And so, and his dad before him, my granddad did. So from a young age, similar to Nathan Hall, where he talked about... You know, and from Seinfeld, where they have the, the Festivus and Feats of Strength, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of at home. It was much like that. Like we would be bending nails or try to pick up a 56 pound weight with your little finger and all these mm-hmm. kind of things from a young age. Um, so I'd always done some sort of strength feats from being about six, <laughs> I think. Okay. Yeah. No, that, that, that makes total sense. Um, and, uh, was there ever a time, I mean, I, I know you said like around 13, you started the maybe more sport specific stuff um, where you're training that and maybe there's some feats on the side. Was there ever any like actual like uh, training programming, like where you were specifically lifting weights to get better at your sport or anything like that, like with a barbell yeah. or, or traditional I mean, lifts? I started lifting at 14 and that meant basically going with my dad to the gym in Blackpool um so yeah and we did traditional lifts you know some olympic lifts power lifts probably far more machines than i should have done but (laughs) pretty standard thing see in england um sports happen outside of school and outside of education so to do track and field or athletics as it's called there you Got you join a club and it has nothing to do with school in the same way. It's something you have to kind of do on your own time. Okay. Yeah. And that, that would be definitely different from the States, whereas most people here are, I mean, are, and like I said, you're obviously in the U S now, but, and have been for a while, but yeah, it's like a school that you're competing for, or that's like your, your team it's associated. They're tied together. Um, so that's, that's, that's interesting background information. Cause like I said, I, I, I wouldn't know that if you hadn't told me, um, now you say you go to the gym with your dad, right? And uh, you're training. Is is your dad physically? Is is was he kind of like uh, taller, bigger? Like like was he kind of like your build? Is that where you get some of those genetics from? Um, yeah, but my mom and dad are like the shortest members of my family. So okay. my dad was like six foot and half an inch, and my mom was like five foot ten. But okay. yeah. I have I have lots of family members, sort of six five, six six. I have a female cousin that's six four. But my actual mom and dad are not not the tallest. <laughs> okay. So my next question is if you're if you're training with him, he's kind of introducing you to the weights and the track stuff. Um is there a certain point in time where you start to outlift him? Or is it still that thing like, oh dad's still stronger than me? Oh, it took a while. He was pretty strong. So Okay. Um I could certainly throw further than him by the time I was like 14, 15, but strength, uh, it took me, you know, till I was like 17 or 18. But I mean, I, I, when I was 17, I was already over 300 pounds. My dad was about 220, 225 at his heaviest, something like that. Okay. And he was a little bit, a little bit older then, so he was, he'd be in his like fifties when I was a teenager. I got so you. As we, as we were doing this. Okay, so um, 
you mentioned that you went to Nebraska, um, mm-hmm. and that's Nebraska Cornhuskers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, a UNL Yeah, and I and, and I think that uh, I don't know if they would have been in the Big Twelve back then, or if they like switched to the Big yeah. Ten now. There's been some conference yeah, changes, yeah. right? But it, it was big. It was Big Twelve. Okay, I'm sure in my team. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so th- that's definitely something. Um, just from watching football growing up and some other stuff like that, you know, I'm kind of familiar with those conferences and and, and, and stuff of that sort. I never really paid attention to track and field. I, I played football, so like I would watch, you know, the football side of things. But definitely familiar with the college. And like I said, that's, I mean, a big time Division One school. So. What was it like for you kind of stepping up from, you know, maybe being in a smaller village and training and doing whatever competitions you had at that point to kind of like going to that division one level? Um, was there a change in training? What was that transition like? Or could you kind of well, walk people through that? It's kind of like going to a different planet. <laughs> you, know, you, walk, you walk in the, uh, the weight room under the stadium there and, uh, you know, they've got like 20, 25 platforms or something. I mean, you've never seen it. I've never seen anything like it. It's it's so professional. There's so much money invested in the every aspect of it. The weights, the coaches, the nutrition, the physical therapy, like every angle is just above and beyond, you know, in any way they could try to improve, they've invested in it. So, yeah, I mean, it was, and in part because I was a thrower, we sort of got to benefit from all the facilities that are really there for football and, you know, people have invested in for football, but we could make use of all that as well. So, you know, that was, uh, it was uh, incredible facilities compared to anything I'd seen before. Yeah. So now as a uh, freshman coming in pretty much, you, you know, you have your sophomores, juniors, you have, you have older people that have, you know, probably been, been doing it a year or two. Um, did, did you kind of walk in and were you kind of like a, uh, like a really good talent early on, or was it something like you had to kind of, you know, train up a couple of years to get there or did you kind of just burst on the scene and you were already like, you know, taking out the seniors and stuff like that. What what was that like? Well, I'd been competing internationally since I was sixteen okay. in the UK, yeah. and I'd I'd come third in the shop in the World Juniors um, before. So that's how the coaches at Nebraska knew about me and recruited me in England. Um, so yeah, when I when I arrived, like I I think I was you know the top thrower on the team straight away i wasn't okay. the best in the ncaa then not by a long shot but i was i didn't know there, there'd been some throwers before me in previous years better um but at that time i was the best like male thrower they had okay and then like i said i'm gonna kind of refer to the notes on this and i, I might i might need you to actually explain the difference for me because track people will get it but like i said not being a track person myself um, mm-hmm. you have two indoor and two outdoor NCAA division one championships in shot put mm-hmm. that that's correct. Okay. What exactly yeah. is the difference between indoor and outdoor? I mean, are they like, just... so the in, indoor competitions are January, February, March, you know, cause it's okay. cold, nothing yeah. but nothing but snow in Nebraska during that mm-hmm. time. 
okay. <laughs> we practice at the indoor facility. So we'd usually, I think most of those meets were in Arkansas at the time and we would travel and uh, compete. And they, yeah, they had indoor track NCAAs and then in the summer, you know, outdoor NCAAs in different places every year. Okay. And was there anything like, uh, was one held in a higher regard? Was there more prestige for the indoor or outdoor or were they pretty much like, it, they counted kind of the same? Kind of the same. I mean, the outdoor, when you think about the NCAA championships, most people are talking about the outdoor. Mm -hmm. um, the outdoor is the slightly more prestigious one, but the indoor one, in my event, in shot put, it's, it's all the same people. So the standard of competition was exactly the same. It's just as difficult to win. Um, yeah. you, you still get a ring for it. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I was just kind of wondering if, if one was different than the other. Um, and, and just to go over, just like I said, just for so the listeners kind of get an idea about your background. Um, British record holder in the shot put, and you have listed uh, 71 feet, 11 inches. Is that the best throw you had for shot put? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, how, how heavy is that shot put? Is that, like I said, not being a track guy, I don't know. Is that a, like a 12 pound or 16 pounds? 16. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, but higher than I thought. Um, mm -hmm. So, 16 pounds and almost a 72 foot throw on that. And then here you have that you were a 10 time consecutive UK champion. Was that stuff that you were doing like competing internationally or was that stuff kind of like uh, after Nebraska, during Nebraska? Was that going on or what's the time? The frame? UK, well, the UK championships were like the national championships in the summer. So where okay. the collegiate season would finish in June, I would then go back to Europe until the start of the next school year and compete in the summer in Europe. So whilst I was in college, it was happening, you know, simultaneously. And then I graduated in 2004. So after that, you know, I was just competing wherever. But um, the the UK Championships was just a specific competition in mm -hmm. the, the summer every year. Do you think that that benefited you kind of, uh, whereas I don't know, maybe some kids in the States are, you know, they're doing their sport, they're doing their off-season training, but do you feel like the you were maybe competing more than some people in the States because you were kind of going there in the summers and doing that. And maybe you were kind of staying sharper or like working year round, whereas others maybe had an off season. Um, perhaps not really any great advantage because it's okay. almost like you have two seasons. You've mm -hmm. done indoors, you've done the collegiate season, and then you've got three more months to do uh, when everybody else can kind of take a break and start building up for the next year. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was getting good competition experiences and competing against high-level people, but um, whether it's an advantage, not necessarily. You know. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, with all those things being said, uh, you know, basically ten consecutive times UK champion, um, British record holder in the shot put. Is that does that record still stand today, or has anybody passed that since? No, it still stands. Okay, so it's awesome. 20, 20 years now. Okay, awesome. So, yeah, so you still have that record. Now, with uh, with that being said and the performances throughout college, I guess post-college, the goal then is like the Olympics. And how how is that transition? Because, like I said, we go from like small village to, like you said, big facilities. Nebraska, you have all this stuff, you know, and then you're competing so regularly through that circuit. But then it's kind of like – I assume a, 
another jump up when you kind of start entering like an Olympic style pool. Um, If you're taking the best, you know, it's it's a bigger pool to draw from. You're going to get just bigger and better people. In track, you've got the Olympics, then you've got the world championships, both of them. It's always, I did four world championships. So it's between sort of 50 and 90,000 people in the stadium. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of there's a lot of pressures. I mean, in college, um, you have the great facilities and you have the great opportunities and you've got a good level of competition, but you don't have the same pressures because you go to a meet and people are friendly. The officials sort of want you to do well. Like the officials will be marking you, but also sort of often encouraging you at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then when you go on the international stage into a world championships and specifically you know even worse the olympics but it's uh you know let's search your bag let's check your bag let's check your kit let's check this well we'll put tape on this badge because this is one centimeter and we can't show that on tv and let's check your shoes and let's go to the have you check in three hours before your event and sit in this room for an hour and then you know check your bag again and then go on a bus to the warm-up track and then go back to the holding room and then take you out an hour before the event and then start warming up half an hour later and then you can have two throws and then compete. You know, there's these huge, you fight in the system trying to get your performance. It's very, very difficult. Whereas uh, a college situation is much more friendly and easier to manage. Like you need a lot of experience to learn how to handle yourself in a major championship because of all these hoops you have to jump through the the system is like not athlete friendly it's set up for tv so you know you'll warm up and then okay we're going to stop you and introduce you to the crowd for tv and you wave and you do that for 10 minutes and then then we'll carry on with you your competition and it's uh there's all these things you have to learn how to handle. So yeah, it takes years and years to kind of figure that out. Absolutely. And I I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand when they watch any sporting event is like, you have to almost be able to kind of flip the flip the switch on when it's needed, but also be able to kind of flip it off in in these different environments, because it's not like, Mm -hmm. you know, in this case, we're talking throwing, but like, you just don't get to decide like, Oh, I think I like to throw now I'm warm. It's Mm -hmm. like, you might be sitting for another 30 minutes or like you said, you might be completely not even warmed up yet. And it's like, Hey, you're throwing now. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like the, the timing can be very uh, out of the person's control. People, people would often practice and you sort of taking one throw after another or one throw every few minutes. And then you get in a competition. It might be, it can be between 10 and 30 minutes between throws. And you're doing something that requires adrenaline, but if you have your adrenaline at DEFCON 10 the whole time, you know, no chance, like you burn out before. Mm-hmm. So you have to kind of be able to calm, get back up, calm, which again, just that takes a bit of experience. Okay. Now for the, uh, for, I guess the Olympic side of things, mm-hmm. what what is probably, uh, I guess you could say, what would be like your, best memory of competing in the Olympics or what do you feel like was like your best performance? You, you, do you feel like what, is there anything that kind of stands out there? Um, just a, whether it be a story or a certain performance, anything. I was older when I got to go to the Olympics. So mm-hmm. 
the hardest thing for me was like qualifying and getting to go and that was sort of the achievement i didn't do as well as i would have liked uh, mm -hmm. at the event um i have lots of great memories of competing but um some of my best memories are the day i threw my pr in college in 2003 is my best memory just because um i was competing with my friends i was competing against my rivals and the way the competition played out like i was in the lead in the lead in the lead and then uh, a guy called christian Cantwell, who later became world champion he went ahead of me in the last round put me down into second and then i was able to respond and throw my pr and win the competition and so the just the drama of that and the adrenaline of it and that was probably my best memory in throwing okay thanks for sharing that one do you remember what that throw was like distance wise oh that was my pr okay. never oh. people 21 okay. 90, 71, 71 11 okay okay I, I didn't yeah. know if that was the same throw or a different a different timing okay so yeah. yeah he threw 70 feet six right before and then i threw 71 11 Okay. Uh, my second best, my second best throw that day was only like sixty-eight ten or something before that. Mm -hmm. So it was very much the sort of the hardest in the adrenaline and the drama, yeah. and it all came together. And so you know when it goes right, and you get a, I'd never thrown that far in practice or anything. So you know it was sort of a yeah. special day for me. Well, that, that, that's almost like where you have that one window of opportunity and you have to deliver. Because like you said, at, at that point, if I'm remembering what you just said correctly, you're almost down probably a foot and a half or two feet and you haven't really thrown anything relatively close to that. And then mm -hmm. I could see where that, like the like how dramatic that would be to come back and then hit that number, you know, when, when it matters the most. So um, uh, cool story, man. I, I really liked it. Uh, I, I just like the details. And like I said, knowing that you were coming from behind and then exceeded anything you had ever done um, just makes, makes for a good story. Um, so if we kind of shift off of that kind of a elite throwing background that you have there going through kind of uh, the NCAA days to Olympic style stuff, um, you said you had kind of grown up doing some grip things so that it are that, that had always kind of been around, you know, these challenges of strength and the training and different stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, was that a pretty easy thing for you to kind of set your sights on, you know, post throwing you're like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to get into this. You know, was, was it pretty quick or was there a slower transition? I, I didn't know I was going to go into it. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'd, I'd planned to always start training grippers because I'd, tried grippers long before in college and uh knew i was pretty good at them and i didn't i didn't do them like i bought some in like 2003 and i, I trained them for a few weeks and then i realized that this was like making my tendons too tight and this is difficult and so i'm gonna have to wait and do this after i retire from throwing so I did start training grippers as soon as I retired from throwing because it was something I had in the back. You know, I used to read the Ironman magazines and mm -hmm. uh, we used to get them in college and in the weight room. And so I'd read them for years and uh, I knew about that. But yeah, when I stopped throwing, when I retired, I, as many athletes do, you sort of have this big chasm in your life then because it's all you know and how you define yourself. And I, I knew that I wanted to keep lifting and keep training, but I didn't want to do it for 
just for the sake of it, I needed some direction. So I looked around at different things that I could possibly do or get involved in. Um, and I saw, you know, I live in California, in Southern California. And so I, I saw on the internet, they had the LA Fit Expo and they had mm-hmm. arm lifting competition or grip or whatever it was called then, you know, um, which is only about an hour away from where I live. And so I retired from throwing in sort of June of 2016. And then I, I did my first competition in January of 2017 in LA. You know, I entered it and just had a go. I, I went to Metroflex gym in Long Beach, as it was then. It's moved now, different Hawaiian guns. But um, they had an axle there. And so I had a go. And I first day, I was able to do 400 pounds. Like, I didn't know what I was doing. But I could do 400 pounds. So I figured, okay, I'm not going to embarrass myself. And I uh, got some blue fat grips and trained uh, 24-hour fitness for... <laughs> first about three or four months before that january contest and then i was able to do i get 200 kilos in my first contest so yeah but the main thing was what arm lifting what grip gave me was a direction and purpose to my training so that i had some focus some reason to still lift and uh and also gave me some competition opportunity to continue doing I don't know, you know, so I basically just transitioned from throwing into grip and carried on training basically at the same intensity as I always did because it's sort of all I know. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I, I don't know that I can ever stop lifting. I don't plan to, so. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat, you know, just playing multiple sports and different things like that, and it's almost like you – you're always getting ready for something. And then when someone kind of pulls that away or that, that window closes and it's over with, it's like, well, what else am I going to do? And that's, that's almost what kind of led me to grip as well. I mean, I had things I did prior and then it's like, Oh, well, you know, I've been lifting half my life and I didn't even really think that this was a thing. And, you know, now that I found this Avenue, it's like, well, let me basically take all my other background and pour it into, into that. So it's kind of a similar thing there. Um, So starting out around, you said 2017, was mm-hmm. probably the, the the first competition you did there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who were some of the uh, like first names you remember, just kind of being newer to the sport? Like who who were kind of like I guess like the who's who 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 was kind of like when you showed up and you were the new guy, who was kind of a I guess above you at that point, or who were the guys you you were looking up to to kind of maybe chase at or or go um, after? Well, I'd, I'd watch. There was some footage of uh those la grip contests because they'd had them for mm-hmm. a while i think 10 years or so so i knew you know there was old haugen and um alexi chuklov the russian mm-hmm. i yep. knew about and there was a guy called roman penkowski who was good at rolling thunder won the rolling thunder event many years um and then you know i'd looked on the internet about grip in general and i'd read a lot of stuff from Jed Johnson and from Adam Glass, um, Nathan Hall, different things. You know, I, I read everything I could, and uh, I think those were the people that I knew about it just at that point in time. Yeah. So now, with that kind of being uh, your intro into competitions, and like you said, I, and I believe it was Ode that was probably hosting those fit expos at the time. I mean, he might've been competing as well, but he was probably the one hosting it. Right. 
that's correct yeah yeah um so with that kind of being the competition side of things did you find out about like i guess we could clarify them as like feats like the inch dumbbell and these other things did you find out about that stuff kind of around the same time and have that on your mind as well um, yeah, I don't think I know, I didn't know all about that immediately. Um, just looking on the internet and reading, and you know, you you don't doesn't you don't have to dig very deep to hear about the inch dumbbell and what that yeah. is. And um, I think not so long after that competition, I went to the training hall, Ode's gym, um, and they have inch dumbbells there. And we went and trained one day and picked it up and learned what that was and yeah learned about other things and more difficult things <laughs> yeah um so that time you're pretty much like deciding like okay i'm going to continue to compete in this and then if you get exposed to those feats you're like well i got to kind of run these up as well on the side how over the years i guess because either they might go in waves but over the years how have you managed to stay at a uh top level for your competition stuff while also kind of chasing feats or do you kind of specialize in one and there's like kind of a on and off season or is it just a matter of training smart and having good carryover it's changed over the years depending on what competition opportunities they've been that's kind of evolved a little bit um there were certain blocks of the year with more competitions available to me than other blocks of the year. Uh, I, I don't, I kind of, there's only a few feats that I've really chased and everything else has been more general progressive training, I would say, for the main mm -hmm. grip lift. And then I've some of the feats I've just sort of attempted with a briefer practice time. Um, so I think in 2019, I got a inch dumbbell from Selene or whatever that's called, uh, yeah. um, which can't get anymore, unfortunately. But um, <laughs> I, and then later that year i was lucky enough to alan radley that made the millennium dumbbells and the first millennium dumbbell actually lives in blackpool where i'm from okay is, is, it, is so, there like five of them total or how many of them are there like the original ones is there like five well, or six or what's the he, he he's like the guy that made the first one and had it made but the store his story and steve gardner's story differ slightly so there's some discrepancy there. He says there's six, other people say there's seven. They weren't all made at the same time, but according to him, there's six total. And I, I, he sold me the original, the first one. So then okay. that's in that's in England, unfortunately, at my brother's house. So, but okay. you know, when I when I've gone to lift that, I've never really trained for it. I've just sort of been able to lift it it's not something that it's just off of the back of the general trainer okay so now with that thing sitting at your brother's house does uh mm -hmm. whenever you visit is that the only time it moves or is he picking that thing up no that's the only time it moves <laughs> okay <laughs> he's pretty strong he's pretty strong but he yeah. he uh he's more interested in training for uh shall we say aesthetics, you know, does his bodybuilding gotcha. training and okay. uh, 
concerned primarily with how he looks. So okay. picking up the lady of dumbbell is not his not his priority. Okay, but super cool that you have the original, right? And yeah. is, is it yeah. is anybody is anybody disputing that? You said the, the stories differ. Does anybody dispute that that's the original? Or no, 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 okay. no. It's just yeah. that um, you know I bought it from Alan Radley. Like he helped me put it in the car. There's definitely a, <laughs> definitely the original. It's just awesome. uh, Alan Radley and Steve Gardner fell out at some point, I think. Okay. And uh, so it's kind of you know there's some bad blood there. So I don't. I have no irons in the fire. I I don't have anything against either of them. But yeah. I just from the things I've read on the grip board. Um, the stories of the slight discrepancies, but okay, yeah, yeah six or seven is the answer. Okay, yeah, no big deal, but super rare and cool that you have the original. Um, yeah, so, uh, so from that, like you said, kind of balancing that the competition side, the feet side, there's only been a few things you've really chased. Um, I guess we can just kind of lead into some more recent things, and there's some other stuff maybe in between that I would like to hit on, but uh. You recently have knocked off two of the biggest gripper feats or certifications possible. I, I mean, you don't. You'd have to almost argue that it probably is the two biggest. I wouldn't even say, you know, two of the biggest. It's the two biggest. I would say without a doubt. So, the uh, credit card set with the Captains of Crush number four and a GHP ten, which is a Gillingham Performance Gripper, that the the level ten with a GHP block, which is like an inch and a half. I don't know what that comes out to in millimeters. Um, 38 millimeters. Okay, 38 millimeter block. So um, you recently, uh, I I say recent, but like within the last month or two, pretty much knocked both of those out, right? Yeah, it was like six weeks ago and a Mm -hmm. week and a half ago. Yeah, okay. So um, what was it like for you to uh, kind of pursue those things? Or could you just give us maybe a little bit of background info on maybe why you chose the credit card before the GHP 10? Was there a reason one was before the other? Is it just the timing? Like, like just any background for the listener as to like how that, how that journey was or why it took place the way it did. The certifying the number four was the goal that I set for myself when I started grippers in 2016, that was my main focus in grip altogether. That was what I prioritized every week in my training. That was, that was always the main goal doing the competitions along the way was like fun and competition opportunity, but less of a goal to me than trying to certify the number four. Um, the other grippers sort of just came in like I learned about GHP grippers on the way because it helped fill some of the gaps, you know, like I, I was able to get some, uh, you know, I started collecting more and more grippers. And so I had a, you know, one gripper of every sort of three, four uh, RGC points apart. So I've got, you know, a lot of grippers at my disposal so I can do more gradual jumps in my training. And so that's how I got some GHP grippers. And then I was aware that, you know, they, you could cert them as well. So I, I'd done the GHP nine cert back in 2019. Um, and, uh, 
but that was never the main goal. The main goal was setting the num I my number four, captain's question number four, and then the others were just uh, training to help me on my journey towards that. Um, it took me. I did the number three in January at that Fit Expo. My first comp was when I certified that, and then I tried the three point five in Anaheim Fit Expo in 2017, later that year, and failed it. And then I inserted the 3.5 the following January of the Fit Expo. And then um, it's a long way from the 3.5 to the 4. Like, that's mm -hmm. it's a million miles. Like, the, the number 4 is, like, 40% harder than the number 3. So it takes a long time. Uh, I like people won't know, but I, you know, I battled with Iron Mind trying to do it for a long time. I first tried to certify in, I think, 2020 on the number four, and I and I, two times in 2021 and 2022. Um, they turned down my submission video to even to attempt it uh, because of not clear enough demonstration of the starting width with the credit card. And so basically, and it was very hard to take because, you know, I'd, got, I'd done all this work. It got to the point where I yeah. could close the thing. And I've shared those videos. People see all those videos on my Instagram page over the years. And they were like, well, when are you going to certify? When are you going to certify? Like, why doesn't he certify? It's like, I'm trying <laughs> to certify, yeah. but they're not accepting it. And so basically for the number four, it, Randall wouldn't accept a swipe of the credit card. He wanted it inserted like a spark plug. Okay. And so the, the difficulty with that is you can't, you know, a swipe, you can go whoop and close it. Insert, you have to, you know put it in there is slower and then the other problem is you put it into a triangle so the credit card is 54 millimeters at the you know at the bottom but because you're putting it into a triangle it very quickly becomes 55 56 uh, is harder and i ended up having to get all about 10 percent stronger to be able to close it with that insert style rather than the swipe because just because of the duration of time you're having to hold it and just the it's actually a millimeter or two you're having to open your hand wider to to get it in there so it was so i tried and failed to request to certify for the past two years and then this year was the uh you know the first time they then they, you know they accepted my submission which i with the 220 RGC that I posted on Instagram and YouTube and, uh, and then finally did it. But I really, really, really had to jump through the hoops and meet the criteria. And so when I got a lot of criticism for the video, it's like, yeah. I understand they don't look like a mash monster set, you know, but there's reasons they, they, <laughs> they've requested this. They've got to show it on camera. If it goes out of shot, it's no good. You know, you've got to show your full body top to bottom at certain times. They want to see this. They want to see that. Like they had a very, very specific set of criteria they wanted to meet, which I did meet. Mm -hmm. and that other people don't know that. And so they're like, eh, this, you know, now I did get a sort of cramp and 
spasm in my bicep after I'd closed the thing. And so I had to, I wasn't, I didn't get to make the video I would have liked to have made, mm -hmm. but you know, I submitted it anyway because I swiped the card and I closed it and they have the technology to look at it. And I take stills from uh, slow motion. It's closed, you know, yeah. <laughs> you can see what they needed to do. They, they don't, it's not the case that they're just like, giving me the cert it's like they made me work for years and years and years to get it exactly as they wanted i say probably harder than you should have had to work for it <laughs> so um yeah so uh yeah th th that's something that i'm glad you kind of brought up because i think everybody's so used to seeing your training videos and it's like yeah. man the the it's like hd it's clear you can see every single part of the gripper touching there's these long holds it's like just on the hand but then, then when the certification comes up, it's like full body, you're way far back. And every, you know, I think people like found that weird, but it's like, that's not Carl's choice that you didn't choose that. Yeah, I, it was, you know? I had to be able to get my whole body head to toe in the same frame at certain points in time without moving the camera. And I ain't doing this on my own in the garage. Like, there's nobody else there. So, <laughs> you know, you're just doing the best you can. It's just, you know, but it, <laughs> it's uh it, it was uh, i was just happy to finally achieve it i mean it was and then when i did the ghp i mean i i was a little sad i got mostly like 90 percent positive feedback after the number four but i got 10 percent of like hate and yeah. disrespect and negativity which at first was hard to take but it's like you know that's just a reality in life it's a universal truth it doesn't matter who you are or what you do you get a certain percentage of hatred and so after a few weeks i hadn't necessarily planned to try the ghp 10 but i started to get turn that so i was motivated mm -hmm. and used it in a positive direction and and then i i tried to you know make the ghp 10 video as everybody would have wanted close up show everything as just as absolutely immaculate as I could do it. Uh, you know, that was, <laughs> it kind of helped me a little bit. The negative comments I'd gotten to try to, you know, I'll, I'll show them sort of thing. Yeah, no, I, and I would say, I mean, from as somebody who's seen both videos um, and I'm not a gripper expert, I'm not the worst at grippers, but I'm no gripper expert. Um, but yeah, I, for the four cert, it's it's one of those things where you're being required to do a lot of different things outside the norm for the filming process. And then you have other things outside of your control, like you said, like maybe a bicep cramp or something, because you're you're under such uh you're under such heavy tension for longer periods of time, almost having to open it wider because you're changing the way that you have to insert the card, all this other stuff. So, you know, it, it, there's factors outside of your control. So Yes, I'm sure everybody would love to see a video of the handles closer and a three second hold. But at the end of the day, if the cards inserted and the handles touch, mm -hmm. that is the certification. So yeah, there's no, there's no requirement to hold it shut. You simply yeah. have to. If those handles just tap together, it's good. You know. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I think that people just get used to seeing the the training footage yeah. or seeing the holds where you're really trying to like yeah. you know that. Uh, almost like overcrush type stuff and they get used to seeing the overcrush yeah. and that's almost what they expect when they see a maximum attempt but 
you know, the warmups and the maxes or the training are not always going to look the same. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. I was going to say also for the GHP 10 cert, um, I don't think there was any question on that. Like I said, you had a little more freedom probably in how you chose to film that. And mm-hmm. I mean, that was, uh, like I said, I'm I'm not a big gripper guy. I would like to, I, I have some goals for them and I would like to improve upon, you know, where I'm at with grippers, but that, like I said, I get more excited for like the bigger lifts. I guess it, it, it kind of hits home for me. Like if I see like a, a big, big deadlift or something like that, I, I don't, I get more excited about it, but if there was a gripper video that someone should get hyped up about, I think uh, your GHP 10 would definitely do that. That's an, that's an intense video. It's an intense close. And yeah, I mean, whether the goal was to kind of make up for the, the questions or that 10% of people rambling, you know, behind the scenes. It wasn't, it wasn't yeah. the goal, but I, I did use that motivation. Emotion yeah. And motivation, you yeah. know, in to my advantage, like that. It Absolutely. Helped me. I earned it so I could help me get towards it. Yeah. But uh, I, I just think that that video is uh, probably one of my favorite gripper videos, because like I said, I'm not a huge, huge fan of grippers, but man, that is one that, uh, that's one that you can kind of get up for that one will wake you up, you know? Um, so congrats on both those certifications and, uh, glad you toughed it out through those couple of years of messing with the iron mind process and kind of working around those obstacles. Hopefully this lets other people know a little more of your side of the story of it. If they had any questions or they weren't familiar with those things. Um, but as we, uh, kind of continue on, two of the biggest gripper certs are the two biggest gripper certs that you've done within the last six weeks. Um, so they're done. You also lift and have so many other feats and so many other things you do. You're not like, Oh, I'm just a gripper guy. You're such a well-rounded mm-hmm. athlete and strength athlete when it comes to grip. Um, we could go down several different lanes. Um, you have the iron mind, uh, Axel world record that, you know, we, we could mention, um, and for uh, actually real quick, sorry, Carl, I, I have one thing I wanted to ask you about grippers that I had written down. And that was with knocking out basically the two biggest certs for um, Captains of Crush COC4 and the GHP 10. Knowing that you are on the grip board sometimes, do you have any interest of pursuing the MASH monster ladder? I have to ask. I I have nothing against it. I think it's a great thing. See, I didn't, like I said, I, I got into it seeking to try to certify on the four. That was my thing. And then over the years, as I read more and more, I became aware of the GHP grippers. And then I became aware that there was this uh, mash monster ladder. But um, it wasn't my main goal. And I think yeah. the thing that kept me away from dipping my toe into it was the fact that like I always I do my gripper day on a very specific time in relation to my other lifts and I only do it like when I'm ready it's usually a Friday but like I I wouldn't ever do it on a Thursday like if I wasn't ready and that I was aware with the match monster they sort of send the envelope and when it arrives you kind of got to do it and it I was like, that eh, didn't really appeal because that's I have everything very, very regimented. I don't yeah. change the days, you know, like that. Um, and then at this point, eh, you, because you've got to go through every one, it'd take me a few years to do it. And it's like I've done grippers so long, and this year in particular, 
it's year of the grippers you know and in a way that's what's enabled me to make a breakthrough to a little bit higher level but it, it is difficult to combine um thick bar and grippers at your top level and so i now that i've done what i've done on grippers i don't feel that you know there's anything else i have to do so i i'd okay. like to i have my ideas about lots of other fun feats that i'd like to get on with and if i trying to maintain like i can only maintain or stay at this kind of extreme level of gripper closing ability with total mm -hmm. specialization on grippers you know, I haven't lifted a bar that weighs more than 135 in any way for like four months. Mm -hmm. You know, like my hands are saved entirely for grippers. So I can't, if I want to do other feats and get back to other lifts and competitions, I can't keep going with the extreme sort of level of training that I have for grippers. So I, I've done what I want to do with grippers. I'm happy with it. And I, I look forward to doing some other stuff now, you know. Okay. Totally understand. I don't, just, I don't just want to do grippers forevermore, ideally. You know, there's yeah. lots of other fun stuff. And I, it's got, you know, I've, we've gone beyond the point of just having fun to get to this point. I mean, it's been a hard, hard slog year after year of putting myself through it to get to this level on grippers. So I, I'd like to take a step back and do some more fun stuff, really. Yeah, I, I I totally understand that. Now, uh, down here for your future goals, um, you say there's three or four feats that you have in mind, but you prefer not to tell anyone until they're accomplished. Now, <laughs> I have a question about that. Like, I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try to get you to like spill the secrets or anything or what you have in the works. I say keep it under wraps until it's done. That's fine. I'm I'm, I'm cool with that. that. Um, so whenever that happens or whatever it is, I'll be happy when I when I get surprised with whatever the feat is. But the question I have about that is have any of these feats been done or are these feats that no one has done and that's why you're doing them? The latter. Nobody has never been done. So you're trying to kind of blaze a new trail. Yeah. That's, I, I think the things that motivate me are to do things that have never been done before and to do things that will cause headaches for people long after I'm dead, you know, like do stuff that is sort of like Thomas Inch did, Arthur Saxon did, like they've long since in the grave, but we, there's people that still are trying to match or get to some of the things they did long ago. So mm -hmm. it's kind of a dark psychology, but it that's what I like to do. Like anything I can leave that will be, a challenge for future generations is some sort of more motivated to do. Okay. Yeah. That, that's, that's exciting to hear. And like I said, I look forward to whatever, whatever that is or whatever kind of a uh, grip discipline that is, whether it's thick bar pinch, anything um, be excited to see what that is when it happens um, and wish you the best in training for those things. I, I, like I said, I just had to ask if it is like, Oh, it's something else that maybe one guy's done and I'm trying it. And, or if it's like, no, none of this has never been done. I'm trying to just, Move no, the bar higher thinking. for everybody. Okay. Um, so I don't know what um, caused it, and you don't have to um, tell this tell us this information, but I believe you had like a tricep injury not too long ago. Is that right? Yeah. In, in um, April, I tore my left tricep, so I had surgery on that. Okay. Nice. Yep. Nice. How, how has it been? Um, how has it been rehabbing um, from that? And was that kind of maybe part of the reason that helped you kind of just shift to the grippers because you really need one hand 
and that kind of worked out. Well, you need two hands, but <laughs> well, well, okay. Well, yeah, I, I, I guess you just you just don't need, you only need one one tricep apparently. True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, <laughs> I, it was on on gripper training related. I heard it doing a dumbbell military press, mm-hmm. um, nerd surgery, April twenty sixth. Um, the biceps okay, the forearms okay, the hands okay, so. You know, I've been able to train them and very, very much slow baby steps with the tricep, but it's recovering well and it's on the mend and it's progressing. Um, But yeah, because of the tricep injury, I couldn't lift anything heavy with, you know, using both arms or with the left arm for a long time. I still haven't at this point. So, you know, Axel was out, all Mm -hmm. those things were out and the only thing really available to me that I could get my teeth into still was grippers. And so that's what I did. And this year has basically been given over to, to that. And that's kind of worked out. I mean, you could say God works in mysterious ways. If I, (laughs) if I hadn't had the injury, would I ever quite have managed to get to the level on grippers that I have? I'm not sure because I'd been plugging away for years and years and, Every time, you know, I'd sort of get my grippers going, get my grippers going, and then the next competition would come up, and, you know, I'd be pushing the numbers on the axle or the Saxon bar or whatever, and having nothing else to do other than grippers probably let me get an extra 2 or 3% of specialization strength, I think. Okay. But, you know, like I said, now that's done, and I'd like to get back to to doing uh, a broader range of fun things we can do in the grip world. Absolutely. Um, with uh, with that being said about the grippers and everything, um, talking about coming off an injury, the injury maybe like kind of the stars align, you know, that kind of worked out good for the timing of grippers. Um, as, as a well-rounded athlete who's competed in, in like I said, tons of high level activities and all kinds of stuff your whole life. We're discussing an injury with the tricep in your past up to this point. Is there a specific injury that's been the worst of your career? What's the worst injury you've ever had to overcome? I've had plenty. <laughs> um, is there, is there one that like stands out above the rest or uh, it just was like, re- re- you really had to dig deep and kind of pull through and rehab or was more frustrating than the others or is yeah, it just kind of uh, well i don't want to give you some sob story of a list of injuries you know but i okay. uh um i tore my left pack in 2007 and so this pack is uh, reattached onto the shoulder it's like altered um and i was able to come back from that and carry on with my throwing career and made it to the Olympics after that. So I was kind of proud of that, but it was pretty stressful at the time. You know, you, you can't bench or incline or do any of the things you need to do for shot putting. Um, I I hurt my back. I have a compressed nerve root in my back at L4, L5. So I have some numbness and weakness down my right leg and in my foot. And that one's the most annoying because that, never goes away like that's mm-hmm. i'm stuck with that for the rest of my life so the best it gets is like a two out of ten and then from there it can get worse from time to time but that's sort of not going to disappear that one so i kind of got to deal with that um 
Yeah, I, I got all those, but you know, who cares? Nobody wants to hear about injuries. Like, I, yeah, I, I, I don't like. I don't. I don't own them. I, it's there. I carry on. Like, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I, you see the in England, you'd see the train station. You see a pigeon walking around with one leg. You know, eating chips on the side of the road like they don't care they carry on with it like you just i i just carry on. i don't feel sorry for myself just trying to keep moving forward yeah and that was one of the big points i kind of wanted to make with that was at least just uh just hearing about you overcoming an injury or pushing through an injury it's not so much that we would want to uh use the injury as an excuse or oh man look what look what happened to me it's more like I'm still out here doing this stuff despite the injury and people can kind of take that and maybe relate it to a certain situation. Maybe they're at a sticking point. Maybe they're at a plateau. Maybe they feel like they have an injury they can't bounce back from. And it's like, like you just said, like you just have to put it in perspective and keep moving. So that that was really my main point of asking about the injury was because like I said, you're still here doing amazing feats. You're pushing through it. So obviously it didn't stop you. And, uh, I just don't want anybody else getting hung up on that or feeling sorry for themselves and maybe kind of uh, putting a ceiling on what they're capable of. So my attitude on it is that, you know, if I sit on the couch and do nothing, I'll still be in pain. So, (laughs) you know, if I'm going to be in pain anyway, I might as well carry on getting after stuff and doing what I want to do. Like it's the same. There is no reason to back off. I'm not going to stop living and, being and moving forward you just just carry on anyway well and that's like i've heard people say too that like uh you know oh lifting's bad for your back and it's like okay well you can not lift and then you can still have back problems when you're 60 70 and it's like i we both might end up with back problems i'd at least like to have a strong back when i get there (laughs) so yeah i my observation over the years of like former throwers because the Mm bigger taller heavier frames kind of people mm-hmm. if the, the ones that stop lifting and lose the muscle strength get in trouble like all of a sudden the force goes on the joints more where they don't have the musculature to support it anymore and yeah. then the knees are bad the back's bad they've got a cane they're in a wheelchair like there's a lot of examples of it that i've seen the people that have continued to lift even if they're in a little bit of pain but they maintain the strength they can carry on with a much higher quality of life. And so from that observation, I, I don't I don't ever plan to stop lifting at any point. Yeah, I'm I'm on the same way. And yeah, if anybody listening can take a message from that is don't stop training. Even if it's not your best, even if you're working around an injury, don't stop training because the the effects of not training are going to be way worse than if you continue to kind of just, I guess, push on and, uh, work, work through it. So, um, yeah, Carl, that's, like I said, that's, we've been talking for a decent amount. Like I said, I don't want to run you too long. Um, now the one thing you wrote down here, I had, I have like a questions for me thing. And you just said that you're jealous of my dumbbell collection. Um, Oh yeah. 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 Man, uh, it, it has been interesting trying to gather them and, uh, it's a little bit of luck. And a little bit of me probably just being crazy to kind of make it all work out. Um, not too long ago, I got two dumbbells. I didn't even think I would be getting. Um, I had placed an order. Like th- this is just kind of a funny side story here. But when I was before I had lifted the inch dumbbell, I wanted just like oh I I would like to have a hundred and fifty pound inch dumbbell that I could get more volume in with. That would be good to help me work up. 
and it would be easier than just having something that I can't lift. Cause the first time I tried lifting the inch, it didn't really move. So I'm like, maybe if I get in that 150 range, I could get more volume and kind of add to that and then, you know, kind of climb up. So I place an order for a 150 pound dumbbell. And I mean, I just think I get ripped off for it basically. So, I mean, this goes on and on email for email, six months, eight months, no contact a year and a half. And I'm like, I just got ripped off. So it wasn't until probably 50 emails later and over two years. And the person that I was dealing with, um, I guess to make it right or to make up for the lost time and all that sent me two dumbbells. So in that case, it's like, yeah. okay, that was like a miracle showing up. I was like, I can't even believe this. So well, I, I know who the guy you did talking about and I've dealt with him myself. And he, <laughs> when I made my order, it was super polite, amicable on it. Like the dumbbell came quick. And then I contacted him to try and order another dumbbell later I never heard back and I tried again and again and again and again and I gave up. You know, I didn't know what happened. So I'm not sure what the story is with that, but he seems like a genuine, nice, honest guy, but he's obviously had some major issues and challenges with the process. And at this yeah. point, I don't know that it's still really in operation. So not yet. To my knowledge, not really. And like I said, yeah. I'm I'm just thankful that I was able to even squeak two of those dumbbells. Now I have yeah. other dumbbells. I've gotten other other methods, but I'm saying like those are two dumbbells that you could almost remove from my collection instantly because those are like miracle bells. I never thought those were ever going to show up. Um, so yeah, it, it's been interesting trying to kind of find them and uh, you know I guess piece them together a little bit. But I like I said, there's so much value to having uh, different sizes for different things, whether it be working something thumbless as opposed to with the thumb or working cleans. And, you know, there's just so much you can do with such a simple tool with the different mm -hmm. variety of dumbbells. So it's not like I'm, uh, and not like I have to defend myself to people or anything, but like, no, no, no I just, I just am aware of how much yeah. effort and investment it takes to get a collection <laughs> of dumbbells. So, <laughs> yeah. But, but, but it's like, at the same time, I'm not one of those people that's like hoarding these weights that I never lift or something and i just collect them like you know it's a museum style thing or something it's like no like these are goals i'm training for them i'm trying to i'm trying to push the you know whatever potential i have i'm trying to climb up and do that so that that's kind of the reasoning for i guess trying to have like like the grippers you try to fill the gaps because you got yeah. so many different goals and, and that's the same thing it's just instead of grippers i kind of mm -hmm. went the bell route for right now um who knows yeah. maybe i'll get into grippers a little bit more down the road but um and yeah it, Anytime I know we're like literally as far as the US goes, we are probably as far apart as you can possibly be, being California and North Carolina. It is coast to coast. But if you ever get a chance or you're ever for any reason in North Carolina, um, you're more than welcome to stop by anytime to the home gym and do whatever you want to any of these bells and we can train and lift them and all that stuff. So like I said, the invite would always be open. Yeah, and thank uh, you very much. Yeah. Same yeah, on like my end. If you're ever in California, you're welcome here too. So. Okay, yeah, I've only been out there uh, one time. Um, I, I I come back from a deployment and kind of went on vacation out in California, so I was more down in San Diego and mm -hmm. uh, doing doing some training stuff. But it, I wasn't doing grip at the time at all, so it was mm -hmm. like a completely different thing. But uh, that that's really that like week or week and a half. It's the only time I've ever been to California. So if I uh, 
if I ever get out that way, for sure. There's a lot of uh, West Coast people I'd like to train with or kind of hit up. It's just, yeah, we only, we only have so much limited time and uh, the travel and everything else. It, it, it can make it hard sometimes. So uh, overall, Carl, is there anything, um, is there any other questions or is there anything else that you'd like to address at all? Um, like I said, I, I feel like we covered a lot as far as your background leading up to everything. Um, discussing the the grippers, the filming, the feats, um, injuries, all that stuff. Is, is there anything else you'd like to touch on maybe that we kind of overlooked? Um, uh, there's lots of things, but... <laughs> okay. um, and if you don't have one, I can probably think of one real quick too. So Yeah, I, I think that... Um, you had an interesting question posed to you on I think Instagram recently where they were asking you about feats versus competition. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, I think that grip is a sport. It's not clearly defined. It can be different things to different people. And it kind of should be. I mean, that's sort of what's fun about it. Some people you want to do the things that interest you and motivate you. And for some that fits better into competitions and for others, it doesn't, it, mm-hmm. but it's okay. All of them are valid. Um, I think that because the contests haven't really been around long enough, any particular contest that the not historically sort of significant enough that you don't, get the sort of credit if you win them for the contest compared to the feats as you said Mm -hmm. so you know they started off they had the mighty mitts competitions which were great competitions and super high standard but then they went away after a fairly short period of time and then you know king kong's been around but king kong perhaps doesn't really isn't really the best test of who's the strongest that's sort of a one that's for people at home in the garages. And then you've got Armlifting USA and Grip Sport International. There's a different, there's some small, some big, and Armlifting USA is certainly trying to do the big stage competitions, but it's just not been around that long. I mean, they've had, they've only had the Arnold three times yet. So, like, I, you win it, and it's like, well, you know, people don't remember whether you won it or not it's yeah. now some of the feats they've been around historically much longer yeah. so if someone picks up the inch dumbbell and they achieve that accomplishment it's like an historical feat that people have been working on for a hundred years and so it it's uh in some ways it's still more prestigious like uh, i don't know there's any contest yet that you can win that are more important or more valid than, you know, picking up the Millennium Dumbbell or cleaning the Inch Dumbbell. Some of the feats are still mm-hmm. perhaps uh, more important. Well, and even like lifting stones, like historical yeah. stones. I mean, the Denny mm-hmm. stones or other things like that. I mean, we're, we're, you Correct. know, there's, there's such a history with that kind of stuff that it's uh, a, yeah. that, that prestige kind of follows it. Whereas if it's a, if, if we are to basically stick to like, let's just say, in North America or the U S specifically. Um, yeah. You might be looking at grip contests. I did an episode with Jed Johnson um, last episode and he kind of broke down, like at least on his end, when he felt like the first competitions were happening on the East coast, you know, where he was at. And, you know, like you said, then there's some of these others that are happening on the West coast. So yeah, these things are going on, but if we go back 10 to 20 years, 
every three to four years, something has kind of looked a little different, changed mm-hmm. names, done something, you know, uh, the mighty mitts yeah. isn't around anymore. So there hasn't really been that same consistency. Whereas like, if you're talking about football or you're talking about a sport mm-hmm. or anything else like boxing, mm-hmm. I mean, b- pe- boxing has been around for hundreds of years, you know? So it's like some of these um, older things, I, th- I think it is kind of a time, a time, uh, not time issue, but, yeah, you know, when, when an organization's only been around for five years, it's it's really hard to have it carry the same weight as the feats, like you said, that have been around for centuries. Yeah, so I kind of, I'm not one or the other. I'm kind of both. Like, I yeah. train to do well in the contest because I enjoy the competition opportunity, head-to-head part of that mm-hmm. as an event. And then I also am aware of the history of lifting and some of the feats, you know, and they, they kind of... Yeah like maybe last longer in people's memory so yeah i kind of try to do both but it's not for everybody it's uh my my thing is i try to like when i i sort of looked at it and defined it as well what are the main things in grip and for me i look at it as crushing grip grippers thick bar and pinch so like the pillar stones of it and then everything else is a little bit related to one of those but out in an outside ring of it if you will so that's what i tried to do it's like if i can do the best gripper lift the heaviest axle get the saxon bar world record like that should put me in good in the discussion for a long time you know and that's kind of what i've been able to achieve so i'm somewhat proud of that no absolutely carl yeah i uh I think that in training for grip, you need to prioritize certain lifts that have good carryover to other lifts if you want to do well in the competitions. And if you go too far down the rabbit hole to some of the smaller, intricate, little nuanced events, they don't afford you any benefit in the big lifts. So, you know, if I do grippers and I do axle, and then somebody says, okay, pick up a dumbbell or pick up a rolling thunder or a rolling handle. You can on any day without actually having touched one. But if you spend your time working exclusively on the hub or the stub or some unusual little implement, and then someone says, pick up a rolling thunder, you're in big trouble is because yeah. there's no carry no over at all. So yeah. I try to prioritize my time on you know two-hand pinch two-hand thick bar sometimes one-hand thick bar dumbbells and grippers and always wrist work wrist work is the key for me because that is the most transfer to everything Mm -hmm. and if you do that you can pretty much do well at anything if you've never tried it so that's what i what i try to do and that that seems to have allowed me to do pretty well in the contest so far for sure. And it's interesting that you brought up the uh, the wrist aspect of things, because mm-hmm. uh, speaking with Adam Glass, that was one of the things that uh, he discussed to me. And I don't even think this was in our episode. This might have just been a private conversation we had. But, you know, you have your body strength. So you have the actual body. Well, that chain goes down. You have the fingers, you have the thumb, you have all that other stuff. But a lot of people have a weak wrist. So that wrist is what connects all of your body power to the grip in your hand. And so mm-hmm. many people overlook the wrist aspect of it. And mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how strong that hand is. If you don't have a wrist behind it, 
to to tie the body with the hand, you know? So I, I think it's uh, very crucial that you brought that up. Well, I, that's once I figured that out, that's how I was able to improve to get the Axel world record and the Saxon bar world record, because mm-hmm. I, what I do is low reps on the full lift. And then the majority of the volume of my work is picking it up and then wrist curling it like this towards mm-hmm. the body. Mm-hmm like four, five, six sets of six of that. So all my effort is on those wrist curls. And once I started doing that versus doing lots of sets of the full lift, I made much better progress because once you can keep your fingers under the bar, you're not going to drop it. As soon as it unravels, you drop it. It doesn't matter if you get your fingers Mm -hmm. stronger and stronger, you still drop it. But once you can keep your fingers under the bar, you've got it. And so that's what I work on is enabling myself to keep my fingers under the bar. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, I I break, I break it down to similar categories as well. Like, what are you going to get the most bang for your buck? What has the most carryover? And for me, I always think of like, and and these, there could be like different diameters within this, but like, I would say, you know, if we talk thick bar being one of the pillars within thick bar, I, you have axle and inch. You got your two hand, you got your single hand. So working, you know, something heavy, thick bar with the two hand, you know, whether it's an axle, it could be a thicker axle, a two inch axle, whatever, or the two and three eighths dumbbells, two and a half inch dumbbells, something like that for the single hand, that's going to carry over to so much more. And that's just two. I mean, you're talking about two things that carry over to almost everything else. And then, like you said, with the pinch stuff, same thing. Um, That's why I like a lot of blobs for the pinching is because it just taxes the thumb so much. And then you still get a little bit of that wrist flexion in there too. So for a single hand lift, I, I love lifting the blobs because the shape of them and everything else, but yeah, Saxon bar, the big two hand pinch stuff, a Saxon bar, a Euro, anything like that, where you're maximizing the amount of weight and strain that you have on your body, or you're actually pushing kind of a more maximal load. Um, but yeah, like I said, those, those are, those are pretty big staples. And I, I kind of try to stick to, something similar. I probably don't do grippers as much, but mm-hmm. like I said, I'm, I'm a little newer to that and I'm kind of dipping my toe into that, into the water, you know, I'm got some gripper goals, but they're not the main priority, but I, I definitely agree with like everything you're saying on that. Yeah. I think uh, the blobs are never really got a feature in the widespread competitions because this little the lighter weight guys and the women can't do them and yeah, at a certain point the hand size becomes required mm-hmm. and so i don't think it's ever going to be a sort of mainstream event and then when i spoke to york years ago i called him up and asked him like oh, are they ever gonna are you ever gonna make these legacy dumbbells again and like no absolutely mm-hmm. not 100 percent. now recently uh, I know someone on the grip board had a conversation with York and they said, yeah, they're going to go back into production, but I, that certainly differs from what I was told. So yeah, I, I don't, I'll, I'll believe that when I see it. Yeah. I, you know, like if, if the dumbbells are produced, I'll believe it. If not, then I would, I'm not paying attention again, to that. There are another, there are another thing that's difficult to acquire. It's like collected antiques, you know, the, the hard yeah. work to make a good blob collection. So I haven't really, uh done too much of that but it, it hasn't featured in any contest that i've ever done so far so yeah. on pinch one point i would make is that the narrow pit like if you do inch like two inch pinch or 
flask pinch, that kind of two or two and a quarter size, carries over to wider pinch. Like you can do the three inch Saxon bar well without ever having touched it. Whereas if you just do the three by four Saxon bar and go to the smaller size, you don't, it doesn't work. Like okay. there's something doing the narrower one will enable you to do the, the bigger one easier, but not the other way around. Okay. Yeah. And, and that some... almost like, uh, I, that would almost go against like what, what I think to some extent, but like, or what most people would think. Cause you think like, Oh, well, if it's wider, it'll help the easier, you know, the, the, the smaller it gets, the easier it is. But, and I don't know if that would vary for different hand sizes. Um, but it, does that make sense? What I'm saying, Carl, like usually like, yeah, uh, I think what it is, I think what it is, yeah. is the thumb doesn't move that much and the fingers open up. So this position, which you're squeezing with the thumb, yeah, kind of stays the same or pretty close, whether it's two, three, or a blob. You yeah. see how my fingers here is where the movement's happening? Yeah, it makes sense. So the benefit to the thumb is there, and that thumb benefit is there even if you then go wider. Whereas if you'd start out here, it, I don't know. I don't know, but that's how it no, works. I, no, I, yeah, no, that... that uh. That's a good example. And I'm glad you're sharing it. Like I said, because that's not, that's not only helping me, but that's going to help anybody who watches this as well. Um, just having that kind of insight. And the other thing I would add also for like directly hitting the thumb that I think is good. Like you mentioned the flask and there's other ways you could do it, but like plate pinching or whatever, but uh, yeah, yeah. is that with like Saxon, there's a lot more wrist engagement, but when the, uh, mm -hmm. when the weight is loaded below, like yeah. on a block or something like that, you can't turn your wrists in as much. So it becomes more of a vertical pinch. So you have to Correct. truly, you have to truly pinch it as opposed to mm -hmm. kind of curling or anything like that. So yeah, yeah. I, I definitely see how the, how those widths or depending on how you're attacking the thumb, how, it, how they all can kind of carry over to one. So I, I don't think anybody should limit themselves to any certain width or any certain thing. I think they should kind of hit all of those to some extent, depending on what, what their goal is or what they're competing in. Sure. Absolutely. So yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's, that's a really uh really good information like i said anytime i can get somebody just to make me think on the spot like i said i'm i'm not necessarily an expert you know i, I talk to a lot of the, the good guys and try to get as much info as i can but anytime i get somebody that you know brings up a new point or gives me some new information then it's like it's a win for everybody so um thank you for kind of demonstrating that and kind of breaking that down um uh I think, like I said, I think that's most of everything I have, Carl. Like I said, if there's anything else you'd like to hit on, um, it, is there anything that you think that maybe grip people are overlooking? Let's say they're competing. Let's say they're chasing a certain feat. Is there any aspect of training that you think is missing in grip? Like as, as a collective, if, as you see the, uh, the whole kind of grip scene, would you say that like a common one is like a lot of grip people don't train their body as heavy, but obviously the stronger your body is, the more weight you can move blah 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 it, is is there any maybe like little tiny thing i don't know if i could say overall in general i certainly certainly see individuals and i look at them and think oh they should try this or maybe yeah. they're missing out on something uh overall as a community in general i don't know i think the main not enough people do wrist exercises you know mm -hmm. if you make your wrist stronger everything will improve um some people perhaps overtrain like i do grip twice a week only and the rest of the time is spent 
recovering and as much as possible try to avoid using my grip. So, you know, I'll see someone say, well, I'm trying to get better at grippers, but then I'm also going to work on how long can I hang, do a dead hang on a bar? It's like, well, that's about the best thing you can do to kill any progress on grippers. You know, like you, <laughs> you kind of, you've got to specialize the adaptations that you want. Um, I think that risk kills, I think, of every kind are helpful for progress because there's movement. So much of grip is isometric. And because it's isometric, you only get those like 15 degrees of strength benefit, seven and a half on either side of the position. Mm -hmm. Whereas once you can move through a range, you can make better strength gains. Um, yeah, I, 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 I have, uh, you know, there's there's lots of issues in grip, but there's no there's no defined answer as to what's right. That's mm -hmm. what I said early on. You know, yeah. people pursue what they enjoy and what's right for them. Some people are hook specialists, and that's what they're great at, and it's amazing like what they can do. But I, I just wouldn't recommend that if you wanting to do well in overall competitions because it will not only take time away from it actually prevents you from making the adaptations that you need to make certain things carry over and certain things make you worse you know on certain lifts i found and so like if i start if i did curls with a thick bar gripper strength goes down the toilet you know it's like it doesn't work that way for like power lifts like if you're doing bench press you can do biceps and upper back and rows and it if anything it helps but in grip it's a little bit like weightlifting where you know if you're trying to do a snatch and a clean and jerk there's a reason why they don't do biceps and bench press and because they, they actually get worse and it seems to work that way in grip a little bit too so you need overall body strength but you've got to do the specific training that you need and doing more training isn't better like i i know i keep saying well overall body strength and blah 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 and it's like well if that were true the guys in the world that could deadlift the most would be the best at grip and we've seen that isn't the case like there's lots of guys that can deadlift eight nine hundred pounds and they'll do something decent on an axle mm -hmm. but they won't they won't do 500 they'll do through yeah. 350 or 400 like it doesn't quite work that way yeah and, and um, mostly with uh with that one carl it's like I, I kind of was uh what i'm trying to hit at is the people that maybe their axle deadlift is their overall deadlift and their their hands aren't really stopping them but it's their body that's maybe slowing them down yeah so yeah, and they, they run into that problem. Yeah, for sure. And there's debate with that, like <laughs> with what what the event should be. You know, I yeah. think that like Brian Hunsaker, he has some of the strongest hands in the world. Um, but he he says, you know, nobody wants to lift any heavy weight. So if we have someone that can say do a 700 pound double overhand deadlift on a regular bar but the hands are not that big and you give them an axle and they can't do you know a top number are their hands weaker and not as strong or you know our, our sport how we define it is yeah. difficult like it, certain events you don't want it to just be a, a measure of hand anatomy like that isn't 
just strength. If people with small hands, you know, there's certain things a gorilla couldn't pick up because he's got a short thumb. He hasn't got weak hands, but mm -hmm. you know, if the events aren't right, it, it would not do well. Like it, it's uh, so balancing getting the right events. So we're actually testing hand strength rather than just mm -hmm. anatomy is, you know, always a sort of issue. I think. Yeah. And then the one thing I will like to add on to is uh, you mentioned kind of going through a range of motion with the wrist curls. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we see with uh, probably almost, I, I won't say any form of lifting, but in our sport, if we say on the competition side, generally, I'm not going to say there's not a few, you know, events where there might be a timed hold or maybe a rep type deal, but usually it's a one rep max. So we're pushing it until maximum, you know, whatever you top mm -hmm. out at. So sometimes when you get under a maximal load or you're putting a maximal load on your hands, it's not always going to be in the perfect position. It's not always going to stay mm -hmm. in the perfect position. So I think that what you bring up by kind of uh, working outside that, that tiny little window of the isometric mm -hmm. is important because you might find yourself still able to pull off a lift. If you kind mm -hmm. of train through a broader range of motion, it's just like sure. a guy that's squatting, um, a person that's squatting, you know, if they're super strong at doing good mornings or something, let's say they start to come out of position slightly on a maximal lift, mm -hmm. maybe building up that, that range of motion through the good mornings kind of helps them, you know, re regain that groove where they can still hit that mm -hmm. lift. So I think that that's a very crucial thing that you mentioned for, for grip people is that so much is straight on kind of almost in a very limited range or very limited grip that by kind of opening that up, I think it will mm -hmm. allow people to uh, be stronger in bad positions, or if the weight tries to carry them to a bad position, they can kind of back it up. Whereas if you never take yourself there and you never kind of extend into that range, then you can't expect yourself to hold on. And like I said, and when you go maximal, at some point that's going to happen. So mm -hmm. there's no getting around it um, when you're going to, you know, for a one rep max. So um I just think that was a very good uh, piece of information that you shared on that. And that's, that, that's how it, that's how it sinks in with me is kind of like a lifter trying to stay in a groove. But when you start to get maximal, things start to break down. Technique starts to break down. Little, little things start to give here and there, but the stronger you can kind of build around that and kind of keep it, keep control of it. You're going to be much better off. Um, is, is, do you think, I feel like that's an accurate assessment for, for what you're saying yeah yeah that absolutely and you know we have this issue in grip where most events uh, they get exponentially harder in the last few inches of the range of motion to lock mm -hmm. out and so that's why you have you know different opinions on whether it should be to a crossbar or a full lockout and i think part of that is more to do with um the stage that you're competing in if it's a uh, people that are heavily into grip in a small gym or in a garage the crossbar works fine if you're on a big stage in front of an audience it visually doesn't look so good pulling a little pin, little stick to a crossbar versus doing the full lift. But you're never mm -hmm. going to lift as much weight on the full lift. Like it's a different thing. So if you mm -hmm. if you get your head around, you know, I can lift this much partially and I can lift this much through the full range, that's sort of both are okay in the right sort of setting and place, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Carl, like I said, I that covers probably most everything I wanted to cover. And if you feel good with it, then we could probably get ready to wrap up. And like I said, I can let you go on with your day, but man, I, uh, 
I really appreciate you taking the time. I really think that this is going to be a pretty insightful interview for people. Just like I said, it it might be common knowledge to you, or it might just be everyday information for you, but there's a lot of people that are newer starting off that are going to be hearing this kind of stuff. And they're going to be able to apply this to their training. It's going to open their mind and it's going to take their training to different places. And uh, that's one of the things I kind of want to accomplish with the show, not only give you the chance to kind of tell your story and uh, cover your background and your accolades, but also you're going to contribute by helping the next wave of lifters or helping everybody else that's out here training. And a lot of people look to you kind of for that advice. So I really appreciate you for coming on the show and uh, just giving us your time and helping everybody out. So. All right, Zach. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. Very happy to do it anytime. And yeah, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay, Carl. Hey man, I'm going to let you go. And uh, like I said, just stay in touch if you need anything um, as far as the interview or anything else goes. And uh, look forward to seeing what everybody thinks about this one, because like I said, I think there's a lot of information packed in here. So Yep. Thanks again. And like I said, I'll be in touch with you. Great. Thank you, Zach. Bye. Thank you.